Welcome to Any Honey and the Newt. Welcome to another episode of Any Honey and the Newt. We're excited to have you back, and we talked a few weeks ago about James Harden and degenerate play, and uh, you know, when, in our episode of normativity, what is real basketball or or the way basketball ought to be played. Uh, but there's more than just rule bending. There's rule breaking and dirty plays too. So, uh, do you have any instances, Anthony, of of dirty plays, things that you know seemingly don't belong in basketball? Uh, yeah, dirty plays. Uh, one thing that the first thing that comes to mind is um, uh, I talked about this a couple weeks ago, and we were talking about our favorite players, right? Kevin Garnett was my favorite player in Minnesota, and then when he was Boston, he became this like, and maybe the thing was always there, but because he was playing like with championship potential, it just came out more. Uh, but I remember um, he had this play against Carmelo Anthony where he like yanked on his shoulder or he yanked on his arm on just like a, I think it was just like a normal rebound attempt. And it actually ended up like tearing a ligament in his shoulder. And uh, Mm. he ended up making the all-star game that season. But after the all-star game, he basically paid, played through the plane, the pain, Uh, messing up all my letters today. Uh, He played through the pain uh, to be able to play in the All-Star game because it was in New York that year. And uh, right after the All-Star game, he got shoulder surgery. And so basically, like... Uh, and then that actually was, like, Carmelo's last really good season. Mm. Uh, and so it's plays like that, which is, like... I understand the competitiveness of it, but at the same time, um, why are you so competitive when in like the grand scheme of the universe, this is essentially meaningless that you are willing to like risk someone others, some others, you know, job security or, you know, future prosperity or happiness. And it just makes me ask the question, uh, what exactly are outside the bounds, even within the context of the NBA rules for basketball? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we talk about sportsmanship, but it's, I mean, we, we all understand, like, some violations of the rules are accounted for. Like, if you foul someone in the course of the game, it's breaking the rules, but the rules accommodate that by then awarding a free throw to the other player. And we know that in a physical game, contact's going to happen, so there's some judgment of, about, like, what's allowable and what's too too far, what's, what's going to affect the quality of the game. But then there's like contact that seems completely unnecessary, and um, especially if it could cause injury or or just seems like dirty. So I'm thinking of like low blows and low uh, kicks. Like there's guys that will like grab somebody's crotch as they're running by or kick them when they're jumping in the air. Um, and then there's the whole Grayson Allen sweep the leg thing. Uh, I was watching him on a podcast with JJ Reddick talking about retaliation and how it's it's something that when people are really competitive right and they get shown up or they feel like they got mistreated the first thing they want to do is like get back at the person that got them and it takes some discipline to learn to do that in the scope of the game okay 
you bested me or you you elbowed me inappropriately. So now I'm going to come back and I'm going to score a bunch of points on you or I'm going to try and embarrass you on the other side of the court. Um, but the first impulse is just like, let me retaliate. And for Grace and Allen, that was, let me turn around and kick you. <laughs> One thing, um, I'm going to dig a little deep into our archive here that you're reminding me of is when we interviewed your parents last season, um, they talked a lot about communication and essentially like having a tool chest of ways that they communicate with each other. And I was thinking about it in this context because um, not every player in the NBA is capable of just being able to instantly one up their opponent, right? There's like famous examples, right? Like Allen Iverson or Kobe Bryant or any like true all true like all time player will just like all of a sudden flip a switch and you get decimated on the other end just to show you how small you are compared to them, right? But like the Andre Bloshes of the world and the even I would go so far as like Metal World Peace who is pretty good, but uh, I don't think he could ever just like totally decimate you offensively. Um, you know, anybody in the mid-tier range, they're not just going to like all of a sudden just dribble down and start bombing from half court like Damian Lillard would be able to right so to me sometimes in these instances it's just like there's no way for them to possibly communicate so then it leads down this uh alternative retaliation retribution pathway where they can like you know they do something like I'm gonna pull down your pants or I'm gonna hit you in the junk or I'm gonna you know stick my leg under you while you're jump shooting so that you get hurt mm-hmm yeah, and uh, it's interesting. We kind of, I think, have a double standard. When when we have these superstar talents just going off and they can't be stopped, it seems like they can't be contained within the scope of the rules. What do we encourage the other team to do? Foul them hard. Take you know, take them out. Maybe not injure them, but like make it so they can't do their plays. Make it really, really uncomfortable and painful for them to do what they do. And I've never liked that. I was like, if they're clearly that much better than they deserve to win which uh stinks but you know as the as competition you don't want to just roll over so what what can you do and um you know they talk about how playoff basketball is a lot more physical they allow a lot more things to happen so i feel like there's this it's really difficult to know where the line is between what's uh permissible physicality and what starts to break that line it's interesting because i've always thought it ironic that his name you know he changed his name to try and uh get a restart on his reputation and change his his mindset ron artest famously involved in a lot of scuffles and we're going to talk about one here in a minute but uh after changing his name he still was the same person right and so he got into an issue where he like elbowed james harden in the in the head on a pretty like unnecessary physical play after a rebound. Like he already had the ball and then he turned around and swung his elbow right at James Harden's head. Yeah, it was um, a it was a rebound, right? Like he just got the rebound and then he like from what I remember, he like turned one way and then Harden was on the other side and he just like jerked super hard. I'm pretty yeah. sure it gave him a concussion. I, I don't remember the injury, but it looked really nasty <clears throat> and they did have to stop the game. Uh definitely a flagrant foul and completely unnecessary. <laughs> Uh, but it kind of, he had that reputation of being that kind of physical, almost dirty player. So on that note, I have a question for you. You mentioned earlier that, um, you know, when you do, when you foul somebody 
um, which is outside the rules of the game, the game has a penalty built into that, right? The free throws. And that, within the context of the game, is, um, I guess, do justice in that case. Uh, or maybe it isn't. But I'll ask you that in the second part of this question. Um, in extreme circumstances, right, the game also has an additional layer of penalties, right? There's uh, technicals, which are like really obvious rule breaks that just disrupt the flow of the game kind of stuff. There's um, flagrants, which is like anything that's egregious and unnecessary. Um, and those have there's two levels of flagrants, flagrant one being... Uh, the more egregious, or is it flagrant two? I always get them the numbers mixed up. Flagrant two is, I think, automatic ejection. <laughs> okay, yeah, flagrant two, which is like uh, a non-basketball play and extremely unnecessary. Um, and then there's you know the ejection, which is like can I think actually is this true that they can only be ejected with a flagrant two, or can you just be ejected? I know coaches can be ejected, but usually they give flagrants anyway for that. You can be ejected on two techs, or uh, I, I don't know if you can do it otherwise. I think it has to be a flagrant two or two techs, two techs. Um, but but they can assign a second tech for your behavior in response to a first tech. So. Yeah. So my question is, is like even in cases like the meta world piece elbow to James Harden, is the flagrant and ejection or two technicals, is that justice? Hmm. Yeah, that is a tough question. Like, do the penalties actually satisfy the wrong that was done? And uh, the way the game is set up is supposed to strike that balance, right? To discourage people from using rule breaking as an advantage. Uh, but when we start talking injuries and like changing Carmelo Anthony's career for the <laughs> because of uh, tearing a ligament, like, can you make that up? Like, he's got. He's still playing ball, and he's playing at a at a good level. But can you imagine if he had had seven or eight years more as one of the most elite players in the game instead of um, an all star on on the brink of being out of the league? Right. That's a tough question, and I think what this gets us to the question of justice isn't exactly the same question, but it's pointing to the topic that we wanted to discuss today, which is the question of ethics, and. I think before we dive into how we want to analyze and talk about ethics, I think it's really useful to have a case study. And we had talked about one potential story that, that might people might recognize. Do you want to go into the malice at the palace? The malice at the palace, yeah. <clears throat> we actually had to just watch this before coming on because uh, neither of us had the accurate memory of the situation. <laughs> um, but yeah, so if... For those of you who don't remember, in 2004, there was a, a early season Pistons versus the Pacers, you know, Michigan versus Indiana, next door neighbors, all is well in the world, peace and harmony, right? Wrong. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the aforementioned Ron Artest, who now is known by Metal World Peace, but at the time, this is before he changed his name. Um, he actually, that season and the season before, was starting to develop a really bad reputation in the league as being like one of the league's like dirtiest players uh, he had this incident like I think it was the season before where he like the Pacers lost a game at Madison Square Garden to a really bad Knicks team and uh, after the loss he like walked through the tunnel to his locker room and like grabbed a camera person and like shoved him out of the way which was like 
you know, everybody was like, oh, that's so bad. Bad of you, Ron Artest. Uh, which is not, <laughs> it's not great, but. Um, what, just, what basketball rule did he violate? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he just, he was just being a dick to somebody else. That's, that's essentially <laughs> what that came down to. And I guess it did destroy um, uh, private property on the broadcast network. Uh, anyways, so this particular game uh, in Detroit, right? It was in Detroit. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, that's right. Palace of Auburn Hills. Um, so, yeah, this particular game in Detroit, uh, they were getting kind of chippy. The Pacers, this is like 45 or so seconds left in the game. Pacers are up by like 15 points. So it's basically out of reach. Uh, ben Wallace goes up for a rebound. Ron Artest contests from behind and kind of like hits him in the head on the way down. Now, th- like I said, they've been kind of chippy all game long. And so this is just boils over. Ben Wallace can't take it anymore. He turns around and he shoves Ron Artest, but he doesn't do it in just like a back off man kind of way. He like went at him with malicious and intent uh, in, intentions. Uh, so he pushes him. Ron, after that, uh, we what I hadn't realized before, he pushes him in the face. Yeah, like he, he does like this his chest, but he's like mm. in their nose. <laughs> Which uh, to add a bit of context. Um, a lot of, I mean, I think people in general don't like being touched in their face. Uh, but, uh, at this time, this was like an extra step in like the, the dis, uh, mentality. It was like, if you touch me in the face, I'm coming at you, man. And so actually to run our test credit, he did not retaliate against Ben Wallace. He, he got pushed. And he kind of like came back at him and Ben Wallace, who's a huge dude, by the way, he's like, not just is he tall, but he's also like one of the most muscular players in the league at this time. Uh, They start going at it, but Ron Artest quickly backed away. He laid down on a scorer's table, which I always think he's kind of like instigating in that moment, but in a a more calm manner. Um, There's a little scuffle of players near the scorer's table and the rest are trying to maintain control. And then all of a sudden, uh, a fan throws something at Ron Artest. I can't remember if it was like popcorn or water or something, but he almost instantaneously gets up, runs into the the stands, and goes and throws a punch at one of the fans that he thinks threw something at him. I think it turned out later that um, that particular fan was just so happened to be standing near the person who threw the thing. So that guy got decked for really no good reason, but Ron Artest didn't know who or where it came from. Uh, this is a important note for later. All hell breaks loose, right? There's just like pandemonium in the sand. Steven Jackson runs up into the into the crowd, starts throwing punches at people. Probably the, the most clear deck of any of the punches thrown. Yeah. And I Takes think... A fan out. I think there was another Pacers player who ran up into the stands also. I couldn't make it out because the video was really blurry. Um, meanwhile, like the Pistons players are now like pushing and shoving on the sidelines. And it's hard to tell if they're going at the Pacers players or if they're trying to like push fans back or whatever. It's all bad. Um, and then we learn later, because all the, the camera action was focused on the crowd, that there was something going along the sidelines too. Uh, Ron Artest had come out of the crowd and was standing sideline, and some guy walked up to him and just started saying stuff to him. And he just turned around and just boom, right to the face. 
Uh, this guy like staggers back. Jermaine O'Neal comes out of nowhere and just like full like running fists him in the head. Uh, this guy goes down and then like fans everywhere. They're fighting with each other. They're throwing water and drinks all over everybody, both Pistons and Pacers players. A chair comes from somewhere and lands on Jermaine O'Neal. And mind you, at this point, he's like in a crowd of people. Like there's like a good like 10 people deep on each side of him. Yeah, so it's hitting fans, it's hitting security guards, it's not... This chair is not just thrown at one person, it's like thrown at (laughs) basically a pile of bodies. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And, uh, yeah, so pure pandemonium. You went to a a basketball game and a wrestling match broke out. (laughs) (laughs) I just came across this Reddit thread that uh, is called Everything is Wrestling. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that was during the year uh, that they went on that the Pistons went on to win the championship, and their biggest rival probably was, or one of their biggest rivals was the Pacers. Uh, as consequences of that game, Ron Artest is suspended for the entire season, including the playoffs. Other Pacers players miss a good chunk of the season. The biggest penalty on the Pistons side was Ben Wallace missed six games. Most of the players only got one game suspensions. And uh, so it's kind of interesting that this scuffle, which kind of started with Ben Wallace overreacting to a foul, uh, might have cleared the way. I, I don't want to put too much burden on it, but like the Pistons were a surprise championship title uh, winner that year. And, and maybe some of it was their competition wasn't as tough. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, this is one of those instances where it changed the course of two teams' history. Um, and uh, the NBA ended up changing some rules because of it, uh, which might have been in the works anyway, but, um, you know, they made it, like, very clear that players aren't allowed to leave the sidelines after this, which ended up working against uh, Amari Stoudemire in that famous series of the Suns versus the Spurs, right? Where he like literally just took two steps on the court and didn't do anything. And they th- suspended him for what was, was it the next game or two games in the playoffs? Uh, I think it was one game, but it, it was during a playoff series, right? Yeah. And then the Suns lost that game and everybody is like, well, if we had Amari for that game, we would have won the series for sure. Um, and, you know, it's come up that that specific rule has affected teams throughout. Um, but also because of that, <clears throat> you know, there's like no no fan interaction. And especially like this season in the playoffs, right? Russell Westbrook gets popcorn poured on him. Trey Young gets spit in the face. Oh, uh, yeah. Um, I thought there was one other instance that I can't remember. But, you know. I feel like somebody had a water bottle thrown at them. Yeah, there was, there was that too. Oh, Kyrie. Hmm. Um, and now the players are just supposed to like act like it's all fine, like that's okay. And there's, you know, fans will get thrown out of the arena for that, but um, it's almost like, well, because we can't police, you know, 20,000 people, we're going to police the players because we have control over them kind of thing. And there really is a wide spectrum there, right? Like dumping popcorn on Russell Westbrook as he's going through the tunnel, it's disrespectful. And I guess the point there is that um, that if you're disrespecting per- a person, they should have a, a chance to respond. But at the same time, I'm kind of like, yeah, but throwing popcorn on someone is kind of like a prank that happens all the time. You, t- you know, put it above the 
doorway and somebody opens the door and it drops popcorn on them. Like, like it's not that it's not like going to hurt anybody. It's just a, but then like a, a water bottle can actually injure somebody, you know, a full water bottle and batteries have been thrown. You know, these can really cause serious injuries and harm. And of course you don't, may not hit your target. You may hit somebody else. And then, spitting on someone during a pandemic where the thing is transmitted through bodily you know through uh spit and and bodily ugh, it's so stupid it, it just really aggravates me like the degree of difference between those offenses i think is really uh enormous right and there's a you know it it trickles out too right like instances like this affect everybody who goes to the nba games for entertainment purposes right like in arenas you no longer can get a bottle of water with the lid attached to it you have to like you know they take the lid so you can't throw it on the court or you know whatever event you go to um so it's like stuff like that that like even you know it seems minor right like who cares about a bottle lid but there's other ways that 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 sort of behavior trickles out and it usually stems because of one person and now the Mm -hmm. arena because they can't police everybody they have to take some sort of preventative action. You know, we have to get uh, body searched every time we go to the arena to make sure that nobody's bringing weapons in because one person does it, then it's like total travesty for everybody who's there. And, you know, these things there, it's just really hard to determine like what's fair, uh, what's fair course of action in any of these cases. Yeah, good. So we've talked about dirty play and we've talked about player fan interactions and, and the boundaries and how difficult it is to to police those activities. I want to take a step back a little bit and uh, think about the notion of ethics. We've talked about other kinds of values leading up to this episode. So a couple of episodes back, we talked about taste and how it seems to be very subjective. Um, you know, people... While there's some weird paradoxes about like how how can we come to acknowledge certain types of poetry as as better than others, uh, and then how how do we get some kind of consensus about art and taste? There's also a lot of variability, and and sometimes we're just okay. That's your preference, and that's fine. Um, and then we talked last episode about truth, and while we made it a little bit more complicated than maybe uh, people might have thought, with just there is the truth, one one truth, and that's it. Um, there still was kind of an objective determination. If you satisfy the criteria, then that assertion can be determined to be true. And uh, ethics, you know, some people think it's more like taste and other people think it's more like truth. Where do you fall in that, in that spectrum? I was just going to ask you, are you saying that ethics is just tastes? <laughs> <laughs> I think... Um... Oh, that's such a good question because I wouldn't classify it as tastes. Um, And we didn't really lay out like where tastes lie within normative structure. Um, But I also wouldn't say that ethics is about truth. I mean, it's probably about some truth, but to me it's really more about like uh, fair, which which relies on there's not like an objective overarching you know the truth kind of situation when it comes to fair it's like what is best for uh society uh, a group of people or even for you know the structure within the game right which is just another form of social class so 
I, I think that it's like it probably falls more on the the truth side, but like I'm trying to dodge the the truth aspect <laughs> of it. <laughs> well, I know that uh, in previous conversations and maybe even on episodes, you've said things like maybe there isn't maybe right and wrong are too thin and too empty of words to be meaningful, and maybe our ethical evaluations should, you know, maybe like what do we really mean by good and bad anyway? Uh, and it might be helpful to get more precise, but at the same time, I don't want to completely lose the ability to say, well, I may not be able to articulate why this is the case, but it seems like my intuition or my judgment would be that this falls on this side of the spectrum and this falls on the other side of the spectrum. And so I think it might be helpful to talk about what kind of criteria might there be, right? What, what would we even use to determine whether something is fair or right? Uh, and, and I've got a couple of ideas, but do you have anything that comes to mind when you try to think, how would I determine whether something's the right thing to do or not? Yeah, um, I'll, I'll share this. When I teach, um, I usually set up, we call them class norms, um, but it's essentially kind of like a loose rule, rules for, that the group essentially comes up with and agrees to. So we uh, co-establish these. And one of the first things we look at is safety. Like most things are fine and dandy if everyone is safe and no one's being harmed. Uh, and that even goes down to a, a less objective annoyance, right? Like you could pretty much do what you think you need to do as long as you're not bothering anybody else. All, that's usually included in that. And we try and come up with like what exactly that looks like so that the kids aren't just like, you know, poke at each other or like just waving their hand in front of your face is trying to <laughs> trying to get some sort of reaction. <laughs> so, um, so usually safety and um, like personal space is one of the things that I always think about. Nice. I, I would also, uh, when I was teaching classes, my first day, part of it would be, let's come up with the standards for this, this space together because we're all adults and uh, we want to respect each other and get the best out of, outcome of this course. And that may not be the result of me telling you how to behave, but rather us all agreeing on what behaviors will work for all of us. And one of the things that repeatedly came out of that was kind of like people using computers and who might be typing or surfing the web should sit at the back of the class because they don't distract me. Some professors are very distracted by that. I wasn't, but other students might be. Right, so students that would easily get distracted by that can sit closer to the front, and and not be looking over somebody's shoulder to see what they're surfing, you know, looking at or hearing the clicks. Just an example of right coming up with rules and trying to abide by them. But we've talked about legality, and is ethics really the same thing as following established rules? You are asking some loaded questions today, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> Are there rules of the universe that uh, just aren't codified into law, or or is ethics something else? I feel like, um, well, there's there's the laws of the universe, like the laws of physics, right? <laughs> right. Which are now not defy gravity. <laughs> <laughs> the Ten Commandments of Physics. <laughs> oh, that's a good one. Um, <laughs> I can't, you know, I I think that, uh, um. Oh man, I'm like waffling between two very different ideas right now because 
You you asked if you know how it's different from laws, and in some way, shape, or form, like the laws that we have are, you know, they've been codified by us. So I feel like at some point they were ethical guidelines, uh, but then they morphed into something more rigid and structured. But at the same time, uh, and maybe that's the difference, is like ethics are ethics until they've been like, uh, I forget the word, but like essentially voted upon and approved. And then like, like you said, like, then it gets plastered on a wall somewhere. And then it's like not ethics anymore. It's like, you know, justice and legal. There's a there, interesting um, tension that develops when you start talking about civil disobedience, where somebody feels like in order to do the ethical thing, I have to break the law. Um, so that would be an interesting kind of thing to investigate to see if we can see the relationship between ethics and, and legality kind of come apart there. But I want to go back to think about the norms of ethics. And I do think that there's at least three different kinds of criteria that we tend to evaluate. And I think the different ethical systems that have been, that philosophers have posited, and we're not going to go into those, but I think they kind of come around prioritizing one or two of these three criteria over the others. So one of the criteria is, uh, one of the criterion is uh, consequences. We want the best outcome from this action and best being whatever our goals are, what, what most achieves that or, or gets the, the most production of that outcome. Uh, so another criterion is principles. We don't just care about having like the most amount of happiness, but we want to get the happiness the right way, right? We can make a few people very happy if they just stole everything from everybody else and got to live with a, an abundance of material good. Uh, maybe their happiness would outweigh everybody else's misery or, or maybe uh, restricting people's happiness so that everybody had a little bit of happiness, but nobody had a full amount of misery. Maybe that's the best outcome. But do either of those scenarios reflect doing it the right way? And does that matter? So having kind of principles, the rules that we've talked about that turn into laws sometimes and sometimes are just social customs. Is it is it playing by the rules what it means to be ethical? I was gonna, uh, I was gonna bring this up a little earlier when you asked like what, what are some things we consider when we're thinking about ethics? Because uh, I, you got me thinking about equity, mm -hmm. and uh, right now, right, we're in this like great debate of like equity versus uh, full freedom, and you know, there's a lot of cases to be made on both sides, and it, you know, I would argue, me personally, would say that like. Uh, even if there's full freedom allowed, right? You're not like you just said. You're you're sacrificing like the maximum amount of happiness you could have in that situation, uh, because some people get to be freer than other people, uh, and that I'll just leave that up to interpretation. Uh, but like in a classroom standpoint, right? Like you just let everybody do what they want, but then some people are going to get a lot out of that experience. But most of the participants are going to get nothing out of that experience. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and so you just reminded me of that. I just wanted to bring that up. No, that's good. That's good. The last kind of criterion I, I want to requires reflecting on the first two a little bit and recognizing the limited nature of our subjectivity. And we've talked about perspective in the past, but we do not have 
omniscience. We don't know everything. I don't know every possible outcome of my actions. So I can't sit here and calculate in advance which action is going to actually have the greatest outcome of happiness or whatever my criterion is. Neither do we have very explicit ethical codes, right? Like that's one of the differences between laws and codes is, or, and ethics is that laws are spelled out very rigorously and uh, are judged accordingly. Whereas ethics, sometimes we don't really, we can't articulate what the rule is. Uh, we just, you know, we think that there's some kind of principle and maybe we disagree on how to best characterize that principle. So in our situation where we neither know the consequences of our actions or can articulate clearly the rules that we're supposed to be following, maybe the best we can do is just want to do the right thing. Maybe our intentions matter more than whether or not we actually achieve the best results or follow the right principles. So should we be judging somebody's desire to do good or to do right more than whether they actually do good or do right? So are you saying that the third one is is intention? Yes. Okay. I just wanted to make sure. And then remind me what the first one was. I've already forgotten. Consequences. Consequences. So outcomes, principles, and intentions. Gotcha. Because you could have somebody, like we see this uh, Thanos, right? We have villains that try to get the best outcomes, and they can even articulate ethical principles why they're doing what they're doing. And we still think, oh, you're, you're the bad guy. You're the villain. Um, some kind of either we're judging their intentions or we think their principles are wrong. Uh, going into the, the MCU as the as villain uh, looking at ethics, it's kind of interesting because uh, Thanos was like unethical to everybody, right? Like everybody felt he was unethical except for himself and his like little crew of people uh, who were working for him. And, uh, but what always bugged me about Black Panther was that uh, Killmonger, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, like, he... I didn't ever feel like he actually was, like, a villain. He just had a different perspective from T'Challa. But because the whole movie is told through his perspective, we are left to no reasonable conclusion. But he, like, from his standpoint, he wasn't going around, like, trying to destroy the entire world. He was just trying to fight for what was justice in his eyes. And so there was like a uh, an imbalance in the ethics between those two characters. This might be uh, too far afield so you can cut it if need be. But I think the one thing that the movie tried to do, Black Panther, in order to establish that Killmonger was a villain. Because I do think they tried to make him sympathetic and thus complicate our idea of hero and villain. But the point where he's destroying the, I can't remember the name of the flower, but basically the thing that gives them their their Black Panther strength, because he was like, there's not going to be another one besides me. I think that is the one piece where it like tipped over to focus more on ego than, ego than his principles. Um, but that being said, they had, to, they had to throw something in there, right? Because we were starting to think maybe he's not such a bad guy. Maybe we should be rooting for Killmonger. Right. And I think in that case, right, this is the, it's sort of a little bit of the principles and consequences, but I feel like in your example, it's kind of, those two things are so closely tied together, right? Like if he had destroyed the power source before he himself took it, 
you could say he was trying to do justice, right? He's trying to provide equity to the people of Wakanda. Right. Uh, but because he did it for selfish reasons, and we don't, we, we're not privy to all of that, those motivations, right? We know some of them. Um, it's easier for us as the outside perspective to be like, oh, shame on you. You've crossed the line now. Right. Right. And that's a really interesting point, too, because I think what we're trying to do in all of these episodes is lead up to evaluating how we make decisions and what kind of judgments we make. And by pointing out this structure of values where we have the thing that we're judging, we have the criteria by which we judge and the outcome of our judgment, we're trying to set up a way about how we can evaluate our artificial intelligence and educational programs, like what is going to actually lead us to developed thinking. But what it kind of also does is really complicate our picture of everyday life. Uh, you know, we, we talk about how important it is to be ethical but which criteria and in what balance do we need to implement them in order to make ethical decisions? Yeah. And I, you know, it's funny after all these years of talking with you about this stuff, I still don't quite understand uh, where you fell on the relativism identity <laughs> because we always go back to relativism but sometimes you're just like oh no i was opposed to it <laughs> oh yeah i hate relativism <laughs> and in this in this case it's so sticky because yeah. so much of everything we're talking about is very perspective and situationally driven mm-hmm. so it's just so funny that like uh you've turned me over to the dark side of normativity but then you're also like <laughs> on the opposite end uh, with the relativism. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no. Uh, thank you for kind of pointing that out because I I don't want to just leave a muddy mess for people, but I also don't think we should pretend that there's easy answers on one side or the other. I really do think that the whole picture, I think both sides have their appeal because they have part of the truth. And so if we recognize that there are relative relationships between different scenarios, different um, values and components of our thinking, then um, we can respect difference, right? We can respect somebody in a different epistemic situation or having different backgrounds and contextual factors in their determination. But at the same time, I want to say the goal is to actually determine an outcome. And you, you have to have some kind of shareable, communicable normativity for that to happen so i don't want to lose a certain level of objectivity while respecting subjectivity neither do i want to um override subjectivity and ignore everybody's individual perspective just just for the sake of having a single answer to these questions yeah that's a really good point i mean like if if we could identify such a thing as the truth right these things would be so much easier because we'd have at least some measuring stick with which to compare our ideals to. Um, but right now, the closest thing we have is like this eternal argument of like what's best for me versus what's best for those around me. And which is why we, we uh, this is where like, I think normativity is actually really powerful, right? Because we somehow inherently understand that like when we walk into a public setting, there's behaviors that we can do and that we can't do. Um, 
And it doesn't have to be told to us. I mean, maybe it is sort of implicitly told to us um, and sometimes explicitly throughout our childhood and upbringing. Um, you know, when we're told, like, keep your elbows off the table, uh, make sure you use a knife and fork in this way, uh, eat from the outside in kind of stuff. And, of course, I'm picking all manners, which, uh, buh. <laughs> but uh, I think that, like, I, I kind of laughed at the inherent thing because kids will say the darndest things, right? Like they haven't learned what is and isn't appropriate. So go up to a, a pregnant woman and say, why are you so fat? <laughs> right. you know? and there's like no filter or they haven't had the experience to learn what is appropriate and inappropriate. Right. Like we have, yeah. we have these experiences. And then when we don't have enough experience, we kind of go back to like fight or flight mode. And I think like in this situation, right. We just have to, be understanding that not everybody at all the time has all the experience they need to be able to navigate situations properly. Hence this, like this give and take between like what's good for me versus good for, for the many. Mm -hmm. No, that's good. I feel like uh, maybe we should go back now and talk about malice at the palace through the lens of what kind of outcome is, is a basketball game with spectators supposed to produce? Uh, what's the right way to achieve that outcome? What intentions do we expect fans and players to approach the game with? And then maybe see where things went awry. Yeah, so I guess uh, just like in our classes, right? Uh, safety comes first. And uh, in the Malice at the Palace situation, right? Um there's sort of, I guess in general, right? There's like an invisible barrier between the action that happens on the court and the people in the arena. We're not told, but essentially treat it like we're just watching, we're observing this game like we would on TV. Um, but we're there, we're there in person. Mm -hmm. And so we have to maintain this like sort of illusion that it's on TV, it's a spectatorship. Uh, but at the same time, we can break that. And I'm not saying that that's okay to do. I guess I, I'm actually saying it's not okay to do is that's one, one of those instances is like, it's okay to like high five your buddy. And if, if you're courtside or whatever, and a player high fives you, now we're starting to get a little dicier. <laughs> <laughs> I do think there's a difference to than watching on TV. That's important. That's actually part of the outcome of attending a live event. And that's the, uh, impact that the crowd and the environment has on the play right so one of the outcomes i think that we want is a competitive match we want both teams to perform at their highest and we want the home team we being the crowd at the game want the home team to win so uh jeering at the opposing players having signs uh yelling things to be funny or distracting, counting down while you're shooting free throws. Uh, these kinds of activities, I think, are not only not in violation of that, like you're breaking that fourth wall, but I don't think it's a violation of the event. I think it's actually intended to be part of the event. We talk about home court advantage for that reason. Yeah, that's a really good point. And um, even there, right, we have to just establish what the what the boundaries are, right? Mm -hmm. um, the one other thing I want to mention was that players even like that 
aspect of it, right? You think of the the whole ice tray persona that popped up during the playoffs because the fans in New York were so villainous to him, uh, barring the spitting incident, that mm-hmm. uh, he would, you know, do this thing where he'd silence the crowd or he'd like, you know, do a whole Kogan <laughs> and try and listen like, oh, it's quiet. You guys aren't saying anything now. And so he became this like villain to the New Yorkers because he was killing them. Yeah. Yeah, and it made the game entertaining. And uh, like you said, the players, a lot of players, not every player, but a lot of players thrive on that kind of, well, I'm going to show them. I'm going to overcome this and, and embarrass them or quiet them. I I think it makes the game, it gives it a little bit of edge and intensity that could be lost, especially if one team is just demonstrably better. Um, so I, I almost think this works better when the home team is the worst team because then you kind of give your home team a boost you give them they say bench players play better at home they're kind of in the rhythm and feeling everybody supporting them and rooting for them and uh they can engage in the teasing with the other players um but then also you know it can set them off we we talk about like a kobe bryant who will take that and and turn it into a motivation to really dominate the other team right and just to add one more to that that thread right this is why like players uh, really like the Madison Square Garden environment uh, because, you know, if the Knicks are even decent and it's a close game, it's one of the loudest arenas in the world. And the uh, the interaction from the fans is, like, next level in those situations. Like, the fans are coming up with stuff that, like, the players have never heard in their lives before, like the, the Trey is balding chant, right? <laughs> yeah but then like you said it brings out like the best in personalities who thrive in that environment kobe bryant famously had like many 40 50 point games and lebron trying to one-up kobe and one-up jordan had like legendary games at the garden right carmelo wanted to be in that environment so he forced a trade to new york um and now we're seeing like new superstars emerge from uh from the confines of their own you know, mentality. <laughs> yeah. So I think outcomes, um, the home crowd is looking for a win. The fans and players in general are looking for a competitive, enjoyable game with the game being performed at its highest level. And um, probably there's some individual desire to see high performance, whether that's points or defense or just, you know, playing at, at my best from the player's point of view. Uh, rules we are kind of set in place by the rules of the game, but also the etiquette of what is permissible to yell, what like funny things is fine. Some some jeering and ridiculing of play is okay, but talking about personal traits and uh, relatives, you know, like making fun of mothers and wives and things like that is generally considered inappropriate and off limits. Um, so so there's some navigating rules, and then there's also like the intentions is the spirit of the jeering fan to enjoy the game and to intensify the game? Or is it to be cruel and um, to treat the player as kind of some inhuman object of, of my entertainment? Right. So there may be some question about intentionality there as well. Mm. Those are very good points. I couldn't help but think, uh, I don't want to codify this one way or the other, but I couldn't help but think of like instances where, uh, in their personal lives, players have done some really 
uh, I don't want to use the word bad, but very damaging things to their relationship with the play fans and also themselves and their families, right? Um, thinking back to the Kobe Bryant situation, uh, the Kobe Bryant rape situation, and uh, Jason Kidd, he was uh, accused, I don't remember what happened with it, but he was accused of uh, domestic violence with his wife. And then that personifying through play, right, fans cheering that stuff in those situations. And it's a little dicier because, right, in these situations, you are crossing that threshold of, like, this is inappropriate, but also the player violated the trust the other way. And this is kind of like that retaliation scenario we talked about earlier. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. And... uh what's appropriate or inappropriate retaliation is retaliation ever appropriate uh those are some tough ethical questions i don't think we're gonna be able to answer them here uh i think hopefully we've shown how complicated ethics itself is and really you know with taste truth and ethics what we're really trying to demonstrate is that uh subjectivity and developing concepts doesn't therefore lead us to a complete and easy articulation of the world around us. In fact, sometimes it can lead to a much more complicated picture and make it more difficult for us to understand our world. Uh, I don't think that's a bad thing. Hopefully we can move forward in these next few episodes to give some suggestions on how subjectivity can encounter this complexity and, and uh, rise to the challenge. So uh, looking forward to the next few episodes. Yeah, and uh, if I can just throw in a word that we haven't used frequently this season, uh, I personally think a lot of it comes down to this very important aspect of our own thinking uh, interpretation. Mm. Yeah, good. 